Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this morning as people who are busy, who have many things even today that are probably on our calendar. And so often, Lord, we forget the command to be still and know that you are God. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to your word, that you would open our eyes, just as that song that we just sang says, to your holiness. That we would see you as Isaiah did, high and lifted up. And that we would cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Help us see you this morning as we look at your word. Lord, I pray that it would be your word that goes forth this morning, not, not just my opinions, my thoughts. I pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to what you have for us this morning, that we would walk away from this place changed to think and act more like Christ. We thank you for everything that he has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. We're almost there. Two more weeks, this week and next. And we'll be done, well not next, because we've got Fifth Sunday next week. But the week after that. And we will be through Ephesians I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've been challenged by it. I know uh, sometimes as we try to get through things, there's many, many things that we could stop and spend a lot of time on. Um, and we try, try not to get too much into the weeds as we preach through. Uh, you should be grateful for that since the next one is Genesis. We've got 50 chapters to get through in that one. So hopefully we won't get caught too much in the weeds. But, but we do want to make sure that we're Um, speaking to the text, but that we're also speaking to things that are relevant in our lives. And uh, and it's one of the beautiful things about Paul's writings is he typically starts with a lot of theology and doctrine, and then he ends with a lot of application. And uh, and so we're coming through the end of of our section of application here. And we've been talking a lot about family rules. We've talked about uh, the role of the husband and the wife and how uh, in God's eyes they are equal, but yet they have separate roles. They have different responsibilities with the home, within the home. And, uh, and then last week we talked about uh, children and parents and how children are to obey their parents and how parents are to raise their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord or the, uh, what's the ESV version? I forget. Instruction and discipline of the Lord. Sorry, I memorized it in the in KJV. Um, <clears throat> Not that that's bad, I'm just saying. All right. Um, and so we've been dealing with all these different uh, family relationships and the ro- different roles that we have within the family relationship. And here we come to a passage that, to be honest, most of us probably can't relate to. Uh, if, we, if, if we're taking it at face value and understanding what Paul's trying to communicate here, most of us cannot uh, understand the relationship that's being talked about here uh, in, this, in these next few verses. Because we, we all understand husband and wives, 
most of us are married. Those who are not, uh, you had parents. <laughs> you, probably, you probably saw how they interacted with one another. Um, and, and many of us in here have children and we can understand the different dynamics. And most, and I say most, all of us were children at some point. And so we understand the frustration of growing up uh, with parents. And so we all kind of understand those two uh, those two relationships, those two sets of relationships. But yet we come to uh, this next verse here in verse five. I'm sorry, my mouth is really dry. <clears throat> Ethan, can you get me some water, please? <clears throat> we come to verse five and we, and we see these, this relationship that, that we just don't really, we don't really get. Uh, I'm not going to have a show of hands this morning, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and, and assume that most people here don't own slaves, all right? If you do, let's have a talk uh, afterwards, all right? Uh, most people here don't own slaves, all right? Most people here um, probably have never been a slave. No, I'm not talking about, you know, wives in your home. That's a different relationship, all right? If you feel like you're a slave sometimes. Um, kids maybe sometimes feel like they're slaves, especially when, especially when somebody's coming over to the house you know, they become slaves really quickly, right? You know, pick it up, pick it up, move, put it away. You know, uh, maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> but most of us don't really understand this uh, slave and master relationship. And, and if we're not careful, um, we, can, we can misunderstand what Paul's teaching here. And we can even, in some ways, give in to um, some really poor thoughts from people who want to discredit the word of God. How many of you have ever heard this, the thought that the Bible uh, supports slavery? Raise your hand. Have you ever heard the thought the Bible supports slavery? How many of you think that's true? All right. You're not raising your hand. All right. Have you ever read the Bible? You know there's a lot of slavery in the Bible, right? All right. So you're all just, you're just kind of pushing it under the rug because that's what's happening here. You say, well, I don't, I don't know. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because I think we need to have an understanding of who Paul is talking to in this passage. We need to understand what's going on in this church of Ephesus in their time and their culture. And, and I would agree with you. I don't think that the Bible supports slavery, sort of. All right? Usually when someone makes that claim, their, their mind, they're, they're going back to a specific type of slavery. They're going back to a form of slavery specifically, usually, uh, that we're familiar with in our history as America, as the United States of America, right? There's a specific type of slavery that we understand or that we are familiar with back in the uh, 1700s, 1800s, right? So we, we understand that and, and we know quite a bit about it. Um, mostly because it's, it's part of our history. We're taught about it um, in, in school. And, and we also, you know, we have a lot of information from people who have written about it. I think of uh, the Anglican pastor, John Newton. How many of you know John Newton? How many have ever heard the song Amazing Grace? All right, he's the one that wrote Amazing Grace. All right, and he actually used to be a slave trader at one point in his life. He actually used to be a slave at one point in his life. He knew kind of both ends, and he eventually became somebody who was obviously preaching against or preaching for um, uh, or against slavery. And, uh, and so we have accounts of, of his life and other people's lives, and, and we understand kind of how that slavery worked. 
And just to, just to do a real quick overview, let's talk about it real fast. Generally, what would happen is <clears throat> someone would come into, and most of this happened in, in the continent of Africa, um, someone would come in and they would kidnap people from tribes. They would capture them and they would kidnap them. And uh, sometimes there would be other tribes who were doing the kidnapping and then they would sell people to the slave traders. There's um, kind of a mixture of how that happened. My guess is probably more of that happened than not because they all knew where everybody was. But people were kidnapped or stolen and they were then taken and they were put into these, these big boats, these big ships. <clears throat> Do you think they slept in the cabins? No. No, they would take them, they would pack them down in the bottom of the ship like sardines. And we use that kind of, that term a lot, you know, but that's literally what it was like. They would pack them in as close as they could get, try to get as many slaves in the bottom of that ship as they could get to where they could barely, they could barely even move around most of the time. And they would barely give them any food. They would give them just barely enough sustenance to keep them alive for the journey from Africa to England or the Americas or wherever they were going. Oftentimes there was rampant disease in close quarters like that. There were many, many of those kidnapped slaves that, were, that died in the process. They were often just tossed overboard because, you know, that's going to be more disease and more trouble. And just think about what happened to these people. And they endure this ship for, for months, going from wherever they were, they were stolen to uh, England or America or some other place, and they finally get there and get some fresh air, and what happens? They line them up on the, on the auction block like cattle. And they're sold. And the vast majority of slaves who were sold in the United States specifically, were sold into hard labor. They were sold into horrible conditions where their uh, masters were, were treating them in ways, quite frankly, I don't even want to talk about this morning. It was, it was horrendous the way that most of them were treated. And that is the slavery that we understand as Americans. And we look on that, and rightly so, and say, that's wrong. That's not right. There's no way, there's no way that God could, could look at that and say, this is okay. This is good. This is what I want. And I would submit that you're right. God doesn't look on that as good or right or pleasing. That is not God's will. In fact, I want to look at a couple of verses very quickly. <clears throat> if my computer works, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, turn over to Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. I'm making you turn so I can take a drink. <clears throat> Exodus 21, verse 16. This is uh, part of the law that God is giving to Moses. <clears throat> Many of you probably know Exodus chapter 20. We find the Ten Commandments. This is, this is the, uh, the extension of the law, more information on the law. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 <clears throat> says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall what? Say it out loud. Steal. 
shall be put to death. Does that process sound familiar? He says, if whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Do you think God is in favor of that type of slavery? No, absolutely not. To say that God is in favor of slavery, we have to have the context. And the American slavery that we're familiar with, the thing that we think about when we think of slavery, God is completely against. In fact, he's so against it, what was the punishment? Death. Not just for the person who stole them, but for the person who bought them. Death. That's how much God values life. All right, let's go to another passage. You can turn here if you want. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7. Very similar statement. He says, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, this is slightly different because it's not just talking about anyone. It's talking specifically about Israel. It's saying if if you steal one of your brethren in Israel and you make him a slave, what do you deserve? Death. I know, it's early, but we can do this. You deserve death. Do you think God is okay with this form of slavery? No, absolutely not. You deserve death. Death. And I think it's interesting here, he he goes a little bit further and he says, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. He's He's not just giving a consequence like he did in the other passage. He calls it out as evil. That is an evil practice. So the context that we understand slavery in the United States of America, what we understand when we read the word slave in scripture may or may not, match what our concept is, what, what, our, what our context is here in the 21st century. And so we need to be careful to understand what Scripture is talking about. Now, <clears throat> Israel was not, to, not supposed to practice that. Did other countries practice that? Sure they did. Absolutely. Um, but I think it's important for us to understand God's view of slavery. So the question then is, if God, doesn't, if God does not uh, support, and if Scripture does not support this uh, American history concept of slavery, does it support slavery at all? And, and we don't like that term, because again, our context gives us a certain idea. But I think we need to understand the history of Israel and what, what slavery was in that time. It wasn't just this concept of stealing someone and selling them on the auction block and putting them into hard labor, all right? There are different types of slavery. I'm going to give you three passages. Um, We're not going to read through them for sake of time, but I want you to write them down and and take a look at them in your own time, all right? Because I want you to study on your own and understand what Scripture is talking about, okay? The first one is Exodus 21. We were just there. There's, there's more in that passage than just the verse that we read. Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, specifically verses 39 through 46. Leviticus 25, specifically 39 through 46. And then Deuteronomy chapter 15. 
Anybody see anything common with all those three passages? What? Yeah, they're in the law, right? They're in the law. They're in God's revelation to Israel of what he expects. The law that God said, this is how you should act. Those, all three of those passages are found in what God says is right. All right, so this is the word of God and we believe it. And so we need to understand what those passages are saying. I'm going to very quickly kind of give an overview. I won't hit every piece of it. Um, again, study it out, understand it. There's a lot there. There's a lot of interesting things there um, as you go through and read. But I want to I mention just a few things from that passage or from those passages. So slavery in the Hebrew culture was based mainly on two things <clears throat> outside of this concept of stealing and, uh, and selling. It was based on two main things. One was conquest of the land of Canaan. When they would go into conquer the land of Canaan, they would take the people, and oftentimes they would make them slaves. Sometimes they didn't, all right? So that was one form of slavery. The second form of slavery had to do with poverty or debt, okay? So we've got the, uh, the really bad form of slavery. We've got conquest, and we've got poverty and debt. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about conquest because that's fairly straightforward. But I want, to, I want you to understand this idea of the poverty and debt. What would happen is as people would become poor, as they didn't have the resources to live, they needed money or they needed uh, things. They needed whatever they needed to, to survive. And so what would happen is they would, excuse me, they would either sell themselves or they would sell their children to someone else for a specific period of time, for a specific amount of, of whatever they needed, money, general, we'll just call it money, all right? So what they were doing is they were offering themselves as a servant, as a slave, that's the word that's used, a slave, in order that their debt or that their need would be met. That doesn't sound like very much fun. You know, can you imagine if that's how we handle debt today? You know, we're, we're, we're okay with just having this. I know, I'm with you. <laughs> Justin's like, well, maybe. <laughs> we're okay with having all this debt and, and quite frankly, really no consequences with bankruptcy to some degree, you know, other than hurting our credit score. Um, but what if, what if debt actually meant something more to us, like slavery, if we couldn't pay it off? You know, that was the reality of Israel. And, and this was not just a, a practice in Israel. This was a practice all throughout the ancient world. All right, so this is something that was happening everywhere. But they would sell themselves or their children. In fact, you'll notice in, the, in there's one specific verse I can think of. It talks about if a, if a father sells his daughter. I mean, can you imagine that? Dads who have daughters, can you imagine selling your daughter in order for the family to be fed? That's rough. But yet this is part of God's law. This was something that he allowed. All right, I want you to understand that word. He allowed these things. He did not command these things. All right, he allowed these things. Uh, so basically that's, that's how that relationship worked. If you, if you were in need, then 
you could sell yourself or sell a family member and then eventually, hopefully, that debt would be paid off or worked off. And, and sometimes you owed the debt to that person directly. Sometimes you owed the debt to someone else. Sometimes you just needed the ability for somebody to take care of you. Um, whatever it was, you were put to work, usually in somewhat of a menial uh, task because you were cheap compared to the hired labor. And, and so that's how that worked. Now, Israel was a little bit different from everybody else because Israel had a rule that you'll read about in, that, in those verses. And that is the sabbatical year. Anybody know what the sabbatical year is? What? You didn't do anything. Well, right. It's it's for the it's similar to the Sabbath that we have in the week, right? The, the idea of the Sabbath is that it's holy unto the Lord. You're not supposed to work, etc. And so, the Sabbath year was the seventh year in their cycle, and every seventh year they weren't supposed to plant. But one really cool thing about the seventh year is all debts were to be wiped clean. Now, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, we're, we're trying to figure out what we're doing with buying our, a house and uh, looking at the prices. It'd be nice if in six years we didn't know anything anymore. That'd be pretty sweet. Of course, I think lenders would uh, probably lend a little bit differently in that case. Um, in fact, in fact there's, there's a statement in there that says, if, if someone is borrowing from you and you look ahead and see that the, the year of, of Sabbath is coming and you don't lend to them, you're in trouble. You think God was, was worried about creditors being paid? Now, I'm not saying don't pay your debts, all right? God was not looking to encourage slavery. He provided a way for those slaves to be let go. He provided a way for those slaves to be free. No matter what the debt was, there was an opportunity for those slaves to have freedom every seven years. And there's, there's more that goes into it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time digging it out. You can, you can take a look and see what God allowed for slavery. But there's one more thing that I do want to point out. God <clears throat> specifically had a plan for poor people. In fact, when they went into the land of Egypt, he said, you won't need, there won't be any poor because the land you're going into is wealthy. It's rich you, and, and everyone will be wealthy. In fact, you'll be lending out to the countries outside of your borders. And, and, he, and he said, but yet there are going to be poor among you. And you know what God's solution was for the poor? Anybody want to guess? What was God's solution for the poor? Get a job. Get a job. <laughs> oh, boy. There's our conservative right there. All right, good job. Um, <clears throat> no, it wasn't. I'm sure that was part of it, yes. God's solution for the poor and the needy was that those around them, their neighbors, support them and help them and meet their needs. You'll read that in those passages. I believe it's in the Exodus one. I forget off the top of my head. But read through them. You'll see it. God's design to take care of the poor was not slavery. He allowed it, yes, but it wasn't his idea. His idea was that his people would take care of one another. Does that sound familiar? Acts chapter 2, right? They had everything in common, and whoever had need, the need was met, right? 
That's God's way of dealing with need with his people, is that his people take care of the need. So while God allowed slavery in this form, this was not God's plan. This was not his desire for the nation of Israel to be full of a bunch of people who were slaves. His desire was for them to meet each other's needs and to love each other. But you know what? A lot of greedy people out there, even in the nation of Israel. And it didn't take long before this became a very customary practice. But let's get back to Ephesians <clears throat> chapter 6. Now, again, this form of slavery was practiced not just in Israel, it was practiced all throughout the ancient world. Um, but we should not be naive when we read this passage and understanding that the people that Paul was writing to did not all fit in that category. When he writes to the slaves, he's not writing, or as we, as we read here, bondservant. That sounds a little bit nicer, right? Bondservant, right? Um, the word can also be translated slave. But when he writes to these people, it would be naive to think that they all were in that class of a bondservant as somebody who had sold themselves because of a debt. Because that makes us feel a little bit better about what's going on here. But let's not just assume that. Let's assume what probably was the reality. And that is in the church of Ephesus, there were probably bond servants or slaves who were there because of debt. There were probably slaves who were there because of conquest. And there were probably slaves who were there because they were stolen and sold. And we need to understand the context of these people's lives as we look at this passage and see what Paul is saying to them. So what is he saying to them? To these people who have believed in Jesus Christ, yet find themselves under masters. Let's read. Children, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Let's read. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. We'll stop there. This morning, I want to look at kind of three pieces to this command that Paul gives uh, to the slaves here in Ephesus, and then we'll kind of I relate that a little bit to our lives today. <clears throat> the first part is pretty clear, right? It's a command. What's the command? Obey. Sound familiar? <laughs> See it? Children, slaves, eh, you know. Um, obey your earthly masters. That's pretty clear. It's a pretty clear command. We don't have to spend a lot of time on that. It makes sense. We all understand. We just talked about obedience. What does obedience look like last week? So I'm not going to belabor the point. But he's saying, you must obey your earthly masters. Why did he have to say that? Didn't they have to obey? Well, think about this. We're going to see later on that Paul makes it very clear specifically to the masters but as believers, these slaves in the eyes of God are equal to the masters. And I can imagine as they're going through this teaching and they're understanding their, their uh, status and they're understanding who they are in Christ and they're understanding 
excuse me, their equality with these masters, I could understand if there might start to be a little bit of grumbling, maybe a little bit of complaining, maybe a little bit of wondering, well, well then why, why do I still have to be a slave? If, if God sees us equally, if Jesus has made us equal, why should I have to serve him? Why should I have to do these menial tasks? Why should I still be in this position if we are equal? Perhaps maybe they saw people being taken care of in the church the way that they were supposed to be, but yet they were still in this lowly station of a slave. We don't know specifically what was going on in their minds, but I can imagine that there might've been some struggle here in the church of Ephesus between the slaves and the masters. And it's easy to understand why. And so Paul starts with a very simple command, slaves or bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Very simple command. You must obey. God has put you in a role, in a station, where you must obey. Just like we talked about to the children last week, you were placed in your family by God with your parents, and your role is to obey. And these slaves, no matter how they got there, as as believers in Jesus Christ, they now were to understand that God's will for them was to do what they were supposed to do and the role where they were. You notice Paul's not calling for these people to rise up. Paul's not calling for these people to run away. Paul's not calling for the slaves to break free from their bondage. And that doesn't quite sit well with us a lot of times when we think about the potential of their slavery. But Paul is more concerned that they are living the way Christ wants them to live than he is that they break free from the bondage of being under someone's mastery. He says, slaves, in the role in which you find yourself, obey. Obey your earthly masters. So we know the what. Let's look at the how. To obey your earthly masters. How? With fear and trembling. Some of them probably already did that. Um, Masters were not always kind and gentle masters. Many of them maybe even had the stripes to prove it. Um, But he's not talking about fear and trembling of the masters, right? What is he saying? With fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. What's Paul saying there? Work, obey, do the things that you're supposed to do with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as if you were doing them to serve Christ. As if you were doing them to serve your true master. He uses that word a little bit later on. As if you were, as if you were doing this feet washing or as if you were doing this uh, house cleaning or as if you were doing this toil in the field or whatever it was that you were supposed, that they were supposed to do, whatever you're doing, obey, do it well, do it as if you're doing it for Christ. He's talking about their mindset. I don't know about you, but has anybody here um, done very menial tasks like, uh, Cleaning toilets, all right? That was my job in one of my jobs in college. Um, I did it so well as a freshman, they made me in charge as a sophomore. 
Um, so then I didn't have to clean the toilets. I had other people to clean the toilets. So I was the master. Uh, worked really well. Um, but there are, just, there are just jobs that are just horrible. And you, and, and you know what? Sometimes it just seems like you just want to get it done and get out and, and you don't even want to think about it. It's so bad. Um, but he's telling these people who are probably doing a lot of these very menial, nasty tasks, he's saying, don't just work, don't just obey, but obey with the mindset that you're doing it for Christ. Obey with the mindset that you're doing it for Christ. Obey with the understanding that you're not just obeying this earthly master, you are obeying your heavenly master. You are obeying Jesus Christ. He moves on, he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. All right, let's look at that. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. What is that? What does that look like? What does it look like to be an eye service slave? What? Doing it when they're watching. Kids, you're good at this. You're only cleaning your room when mom and dad walk into the room to see how you're doing. That's why it takes five hours to clean your room. You know, if, you're only do, if they're only doing the work when somebody's watching, then they're not really doing it in an effort to please God. If they're only doing the work to make some earthly master happy as a people pleaser, then they're not really doing the work to please God. If your obedience is only based on whether or not somebody is watching, then you're not obeying to please Christ. He's saying, don't be like the people pleasers. Don't be like the ones who are just sitting around who are, who are taking their dear sweet time to go do something until mom and dad are watching, until the boss is watching, until your master is watching. He said, don't be I, what was it? I service, thank you. I almost said I see ears. That would have been redundant. I service, don't work in I service or as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. And then this next phrase is interesting. It says, doing the will of God from the heart. Doing the will of God from the heart. Again, think about where these people are. They're slaves. They're, they really don't have a choice what they do, but yet Paul's telling them, obey, and obey thinking about the fact that you're obeying not just for this earthly master, but you're obeying for your heavenly master, which is Jesus Christ. And guess what? This is God's will. You say, that's not fair. It's God's will. It was God's will that these people in the station and the circumstance that they found themselves fulfilled the role that they had. They were to obey because it was the will of God that they do so. Rendering service <clears throat> with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Do you think maybe some of these slaves begrudged the things that they had to do? You think there were some things that they had to do that weren't very fun? Well, they were slaves. Probably most of the things they did weren't very fun. And I'm sure they, they probably did things maybe flippantly. They did things, you know, grumbling and complaining. 
maybe even wishing poorly upon the master for making them do them. And what does Paul say? He says, do them with goodwill. Rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. Again, Paul keeps hammering this point home over and over and over again. No matter what station you are in, even as slaves, obey. Do what is right. Treat your master in a way that is right because it's God's will and you should do it because you're doing it for Christ. You should do it because you're doing it for him. Not because you're doing it for these men. Yes, yes, these, these men are going to benefit from what you do for them. But ultimately, ultimately you're going to stand before Christ and give an account of how you obeyed. Sure, there are a lot of slaves who are going to be obedient because they don't want to get beat. But you be obedient because you're doing it for Christ and not for them. So why? We have the what, the command. We have the how, which is to do it as if we're doing it for Christ. But why? Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. What's Paul saying? Why should you do this? Well, first of all, because it's God's will. <laughs> but why else? Because there's a reward. There is a reward waiting for those who faithfully obey and serve Jesus Christ. What did he say? He said, if all the good that you do, let's go back to it, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from whom? From the Lord, right? Paul's not saying, hey, if you guys do good, if you do everything that I'm telling you to do, your master's man, they are going to treat you so well. They are just going to love on you. That's not what he's saying, right? The reason is not because everything's going to be hunky-dory with the masters. The reason is because ultimately when they stand before Christ, they're either going to be dismayed at how little they have to lay at his feet, or hopefully if they follow this instruction, they're going to stand before Christ and say, and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He says, even as slaves, even in your station as a slave, in your role as a slave, you will be judged. And the good that you do will be rewarded by the Lord. And he says, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or if you're free. Because every single one of us is going to stand before God and give an account of what we did with our life. Now, none of us are slaves. None of us are masters. We can draw some parallels, of course, to, um, to our home life. We can draw some parallels, of course, to our jobs. Um, and I think it's right and okay to do that. How can we apply this to ourselves in the 21st century when we don't, we don't really live in that society? Let me ask this. Are you... In your roles, whatever they are, are you obeying? Are you fulfilling the tasks that you are assigned to do by your earthly masters? 
And are you doing those tasks in such a way that you understand it's not about making them happy, it's about pleasing your heavenly master? Is that your focus in the home? Is that your focus in the church? Is that your focus at work? Is that how you view it? Or is it just, ah, got to go to work again. Got to pay the bills because I'm in debt. That's our modern slavery. Got to go to work. Got to do this thing that I don't really want to do. And nobody's really around, so I think I'll just surf the internet for a little while. Oh, wait, here comes a boss. Better pull that, that coding application again. No, I'm not talking about me. Is that how we operate at work? Is that how we operate in the home? Children, is that how we operate? Do we operate in our roles that God has given us, that God has placed us in, understanding that we are doing that for Christ and not just for man? Yeah, man's going to benefit. You know what? If I do my job for Christ, the people ahead of me, uh, higher than me in my job, they're going to benefit. But it doesn't matter to me if they benefit because really all that should concern me is what Christ thinks of what I'm doing. And do we do that with an understanding that one day we will stand before Christ and give an account of every idle word and every idle time spent that we were not actively obedient? Is that how we view our role? Or is it just a burden? Is it just a pain? Is it just, uh, this is my life? Are we living it for Christ? Now, Paul goes on. And he talks to another group of people. He says in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them. Wait, did you read that? Masters, do the same to them. What's he saying? He says, Masters, you are as responsible to do the same thing that I've been talking to the slaves to, to do. He's saying, Masters, when you are in your role, you should be doing your role, not so that people above you <laughs> are okay with it, not so that the slaves are necessarily okay with it. He said, you should do your role for whom? For Christ. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? When we think about this relationship of a slave and a master, it's kind of a weird idea for the master. You kind of, I don't know what it is. We just kind of look at masters as being evil people, right? But as the master, you should fulfill your role in a way that pleases Jesus Christ, in a way that, that honors him, in a way that is done for him. Everything that he just said to the slaves applies to the masters as well. And, and I don't know about you, until I was digging into it, I, I, I think I've just always glossed over that. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's right there in black and white. You should treat your role the same way the slaves treat their role. And that is, you should be a master who is doing his role for Christ. Because guess what? That master is also going to stand before Christ someday. And he's going to have to give an account of how he performed his role in relationship to those slaves. And he's going to have to give, give, an account, give an account to God for how he treated those slaves. 
and for how he did his part of whatever the arrangement was. Maybe he didn't want to let the slaves go when he was supposed to let the slaves go. He's going to give an account for that in heaven. Do what you're supposed to do within the role that God has given you. But not just are they to do what the slaves were to do. But he says, and stop threatening. Stop threatening. Now this is where we kind of get the idea of a master, right? We get the idea, we think back at Egypt, you know, we've got the Israelites in Egypt and they're being beaten, you know, and whipped and, 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 all, and threatened. You know, that's kind of what I think of when I think of this idea of threatening. He's saying, masters, stop doing that. Stop threatening. That's not the way that you should be treating those who are under you as slaves. And you know what? That's, that's a problem with anybody typically who has power. Have you ever noticed that? Typically anyone with power has a problem with threatening. Um, it's very rare. It's very rare to find uh, humble people in, in leadership. I think there's, you know, there's some psychological things that probably go along with that. But uh, the people in power, you know, they, they tend to be threateners. I mean, and sadly enough, it even happens in our homes. You know, men, fathers, it's easy if we're not careful to become threatening to our wife, to our children. Um, I think it's interesting in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, it, Paul, Peter's talking to elders and he says, you should not be domineering over the flock. Why? Because there's a tendency for people with power and authority to be threatening, to be domineering. And Paul's saying, don't do that. That is not the type of attitude, that is not the type of action that pleases your heavenly master. Why should they not be domineering? Why should they not be threatening? Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Paul's saying, look, masters, I understand that God has put you in a role where you are over these slaves, but don't take that opportunity of authority to be threatening, to be mean, to be domineering. Instead, understand that your master, remember he's talking to believers here, your master is the same as their master in heaven. And to him, you are equal. And so in the church of Ephesus, Paul is talking to masters and slaves. Yes, different roles. But yet he's telling them, you are equal in the church. You are equal in God's eyes and you should be treating one another in a way that pleases him. Even though your roles might be different. Even though your responsibilities might be different. Do it in a way that pleases Christ. I don't know, we've maybe got a few employers here. Maybe, you, maybe someone, some of you in here are in management and some sort of authority in your job. Do you treat people the way that you would if they were part of the body of Christ? That depends how you treat people in the body of Christ. Do you treat people in the body of Christ as equal? 
See, even though Paul's writing to a culture that we really don't understand, even though he's writing to people who are long gone, even though he's writing to a situation that none of us have ever experienced, the truth that he's proclaiming is relevant to us today. In whatever role we find ourselves, are we doing it for Christ? Are we doing it because he is our true master? Or are we just doing it to get by? Are we just doing it for earthly wealth and happiness and prestige? Or are we doing it so that one day, when life is over, we will stand before Christ and hear those words?